I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, the sermon is very appropriate today uh, because it focuses on finding uh, comfort uh, in the midst of grief. Uh, we uh, continue our study excelling in our love uh, for one another. Uh, and in this study, as you know, uh, we are examining the one another passages in the New Testament to learn how to love one another uh, in the family of God. And today we come to lesson 11, which I've entitled, Love's Eternal Hope. Uh, our focal passage is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18, which describes the rapture of the church. Uh, the rapture being when Christ uh, comes for his church, his bride, uh, to take us out of this world to rule at his side as his eternal helpmate. The last Sunday, I provided uh, for you a survey of future events, which is on the backside of your sermon notes. And I'm not going to take the time to review that. Uh, but if you missed last Sunday, you can view the message on the church website, Edgewood GA. Com. But let's begin by looking at the introduction there in your sermon notes. Christ's return for his bride, the church, was a major point of emphasis in Paul's teaching to the Thessalonian church to motivate them to live a life pleasing to God. There's a reference to Christ's return at the end of every single chapter. Now let's uh, just pause right there. And let's briefly look at each one of these references. There are five chapters in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And again, each chapter ends with a reference to the return of Christ. So let me just share these uh, with you because I think it's very, very powerful to see how Paul takes each of these references and he relates them to some different aspect of the Christian life, to motivate us to live a life pleasing to Him. At the end of chapter 1, for example, uh, Christ's return is given as motivation for salvation. Uh, verses 9 and 10 read, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Talking about uh, how the uh, uh, individuals there in the city of Thessalonica received uh, Paul and his companions. He says, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2, Christ's return is given as motivation for Christian service and soul winning. Uh, verses 19 and 20 read, For who is our hope, our joy, or our crown of exaltation? In other words, Paul is asking the question, uh, Who is going to be our reward, our joy, our crown at the coming of Jesus? And he says, Is it not even you? He's talking about uh, the believers at Thessalonica, those individuals he had the opportunity to lead to Christ, who formed this church. He says, It is not even you in the presence of of our Lord Jesus at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. And then at the end of chapter 3, Christ's return is given as motivation for stability. 
perseverance in the Christian life. Verse 13 reads, So that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then at the end of chapter 4, which is our focal passage for today, Christ's return is given as motivation to overcome grief. Uh, Those verses read, and again, our focal passage for today, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died within the church family, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then at the end of chapter 5, Christ's return is given as motivation for sanctification. Again, to live a holy, a pure life. Verse 23 reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after seeing these five references and seeing how the Apostle Paul used Christ's return as motivation for Christian living does give me the opportunity to drive home the truth that we ended with last Sunday. And that was this. The purpose of prophecy is not to create speculation about the future, but motivation to live for Christ today. Christ's return is not a theory to be discussed, but a truth to be lived. We are to live our lives in light of this certainty of His return, knowing that when He returns, we will give an account of how we lived for Him. So be careful not to get so caught up in curiosity about the end times that you neglect the principles of spiritual growth and evangelism that Christ's return is designed to motivate. Now go back to the introduction in your sermon notes to that second paragraph. The church, the church at Thessalonica, lived with such expectation and excitement for Christ's return, they were totally unprepared for bereavement. Now just pause right there for a moment. In other words, Paul had taught them so much about Christ's imminent return, and they were looking forward to that return, they, they, they thought it was going to happen uh, in their lifetime, and they had this expectancy, just like we should have this expectancy today, and they were excited like we should be excited today because it could happen at any moment. And because they had this expectancy and excitement, when uh, members within the church family began to die, uh, as it mentions in your sermon notes, it began to raise questions. 
what will, going back to the sermon notes, what will happen with the dead in Christ when Jesus comes for his own? Will they miss out on all the wonderful blessings associated with Christ's return? Will we see them again? And these questions became so disturbing that many within the church family got stuck in their grief. So Paul wrote these verses in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, to answer their questions. So follow in your notes that we, as we look at five key truths that Paul drives home in these verses that should bring comfort to our hearts when we're dealing with grief over a loved one or a friend who knew the Lord. And the first truth is this, eternal love's hope is built on divine revelation. Our hope for a future life with Jesus is built on divine revelation. Notice he wrote in verses uh, 13 and 15, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Again, a reference to death. That you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For this we say to you by what? The word of the Lord. By his authority. Now let me make two uh, very simple but I think important observations. The purpose of these verses, once again, is not to satisfy idle speculation about end-time events, but to encourage those experiencing profound grief over the loss of a loved one. And no matter how firm you are in your faith, the separation and loneliness caused by the death of loved ones creates intense emotional shock. To lose a loved one is to lose part of oneself, which often requires very radical and painful adjustments, adjustments in life. And my simple point is this. Again, I don't care how strong you are in your faith. When you lo lose a loved one, when we lose someone in the church family, grief is inevitable. Grief is an escape. We saw that this morning as you watched that video with those bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. And you just saw those pictures of those individuals mourning the loss of their loved ones. I mean, we all felt what happened in this sanctuary. So grief is real. Grief is very, very real. But that takes me to the second observation, which is the heart of this passage. Although believers, yes, we, we grieve, and we grieve deeply over the loss of loved ones who knew the Lord, we are not to grieve as those without hope. And our hope is built on the promises of God's Word. Amen? Upon divine revelation. Again, Paul said, for this we say to you by the Word of the Lord. See, Paul recognized if a believer falls into overwhelming despair, in their grief. If a believer gets stuck in their grief, and at times we do get stuck in our grief, their greatest need is to be informed by God's Word in order to bring their faith and emotions in harmony with one another. So what does Paul say about those within the church family who had died? Verse 14, for if we believe 
that Jesus died and rose again. And matter of fact, that would be more accurately translated, since we do believe. I mean, this is an affirmation of our confession. Since we do believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus. See, part, listen now, part of our Christian testimony and witness to a lost world is to demonstrate that as believers, we can look right into the face of death without fear. That we can experience a genuine celebrative joy that runs even deeper than our sorrow. Knowing that our loved one is alive and well with Jesus. And one day we will be together again. If you are stuck in your grief, you would do well to remember what Jesus said and asked Martha. When she was struggling with grief over the death of her brother Lazarus. John 11 verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And see, if you're struggling with grief, that's the question you need to be lovingly, gently challenged with today. Do you believe? Do you believe what I just read? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that everyone who lives and believes in Him shall never die? So love's eternal hope is built on divine revelation. I always, uh, when I uh, came here to Edgewood in uh, 1977 and began to work with uh, and minister with Brother David, I always, always appreciate, if you've ever been in a funeral that Brother David conducts, what does he always begin with? Scripture. Without commentary, just Scripture. Because he knows that is where we find our comfort. Look at the second truth. Love's eternal hope guarantees Christ's return. Love's eternal hope guarantees Christ's return. Uh, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Did you know that... The return of Christ is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. I'll say that again. The return of Christ is literally mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. An average of one reference for every 25 verses. One reference for every... Jesus himself spoke more about his return than he even did on heaven. Now, the point is this. The point is this. If all the prophecies in the Old Testament referring to the first coming of Christ were fulfilled, why would we doubt God's promises concerning his return? 
there was a professor, uh, Peter Stoner. This has always amazed me. He was a brilliant mathematician, uh, uh, Department of Math on uh, university level. And uh, using the science of mathematical probability, he took just eight of the Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ, and he took them to determine the mathematical probability that all eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one man. And remember, these, all these prophecies were given hundreds and hundreds of years uh, before the uh, birth of Jesus. Now, here are the eight prophecies, if you want to know what they are. I'll mention them very, very quickly. That he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be preceded by the messenger, remember the one that would be that voice in the wilderness, of course, John the Baptist, that he would enter Jer Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that that money would be thrown in God's house and then used to buy the potter's field, that he would be dumb and silent before his accusers, and that his hands and his feet would be pierced, and he would die among thieves. He took those eight prophecies, and using, again, the mathematical uh, uh, formula for probability, he found that the chance of all eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That is one with 17 zeros after it. I have no idea what that number is. But he helps us out to, to help us grasp that. He said if you had that many silver dollars, 10 to the 17th power, if you had that many silver dollars, you would be able to cover the entire state of Texas two feet high. The entire state of Texas two feet high. So he says you take your silver dollars, you fill the state of Texas, the entire state, two feet high with these silver, you mark one of them, you stir them all together, you take someone, you blindfold them, you bring them in a helicopter, drop them right in the middle of Texas, say you can walk in any direction you want as long as you want, but at some point you got to reach down and you got to pick up one coin and the chances of you picking that coin would be what? One to the 10 to the 17th uh, power. It's fascinating, I won't go into any great detail on this, but he then took 48 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. You know, there are several hundred in the Old Testament. And he found that uh, the mathematical probability of all 48 of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man was 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I ask again, if all the prophecies related to Christ's first coming came true, why doubt God's promises concerning his return? Christ's return is guaranteed, and when he comes, he will deliver his children from this world, and he will deal out retribution and wrath on an unbelieving world. There will be a payday someday. And the question is, are you ready? If he were to come during this service today, are you ready? Would you be one of those that he would deliver from this world? You are his child. Or would you be one that would know his retribution and his wrath? Look at the third wonderful truth. Love's eternal hope ensures dead believers a bodily resurrection. 
This is one of the things Paul drove home to the Thessalonians to comfort them about their lost loved ones. That love's eternal hope ensures that these dead believers will know a bodily resurrection. Uh, Look at those passages out of 1 Thessalonians 4 there in your notes. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now the first thing to observe is that believers who have died are said to have what? Fallen asleep. And I do need to mention that this is not referring to the soul that is sleeping. It is the body that sleeps. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, and it could not be any clearer, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. And in Philippians 1, he expressed that I have the desire to depart, to be with Christ, which he says is so very, very much better. And you remember Jesus told the thief on the cross what? Today. Today you will see me in paradise. At death, for example, this past Friday evening, 8.30, when Randy Bledsoe died, he knew the Lord. At death, his spirit left his body to be forever with the Lord. But the body goes to sleep, not to function any longer. And it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls this earthly body a seed, a seed that dies and then is planted in the ground to bring forth a new eternal body. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 38. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it does not grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body He wants it to have. In other words, the dead body is the seed planted in the ground. The resurrection body is the flower that comes from the seed. Skipping down to verse 42, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, planted a perishable body. It is raised, what? An imperishable body. It is sown, planted in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown, planted in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown, planted as a natural body, is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, before we move move on, let me go back to sleep being used as an analogy of death. That term, by the way, is never used in the New Testament of anyone but believers. It never says of a non-believer when he died, that he fell asleep. And I believe there's a wonderful lesson in this. For a believer, dying is not to be feared any more than falling asleep. And I think that's a beautiful thought. 
for a believer. Dying is not to be feared any more than you would fear falling asleep. Because after sleep comes what? An awakening. And after death comes what? An awakening where? In God's presence. In the arms of Jesus. Look at the fourth truth. Love's eternal hope ensures living believers a transforming rapture. A transforming rapture. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up. Uh, the words caught up uh, translates the Greek word harparzo. And, and let me share with you, there are various uh, meanings of this Greek word, which I believe each sheds a, a little different light uh, on the rapture. Uh, one of the meaning, meanings is to catch away speedily, to snatch away speedily. In other words, the rapture will come, what? Suddenly. Uh, Jesus said, no one knows the uh, time or the hour. Therefore, we should live each day, what? In expectation of our Lord's return to ensure that when He comes, we are living a life pleasing to Him. I think of the Apostle John's admonition in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Listen very carefully. He says, now little children, abide in Him. Abide in Jesus. In other words, live in Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus. Share your life with Jesus. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. As we saw last week, following the rapture of the church is what? The judgment seat of Christ. That's for believers, not unbelievers. It has nothing to do with salvation, but with rewards, either the loss of rewards or the gaining of rewards. And he says, live your life in such a way that when he does appear, that will be a day of great confidence before, uh, before you so that you can stand before him to receive your eternal reward, not be a time of shame and the loss of reward because all the opportunities you failed to avail yourself of to serve him and to honor him and minister his love uh, to others. A second meaning of this word is to seize by force. Uh, to seize by force, sort of like a, a rescue mission uh, where the army or marines, you know, or whoever, or seals go in and uh, snatch somebody out that maybe has been uh, captured uh, uh, by the enemy. Now, this meaning, I, I, I don't know uh, all the particulars, what's going to happen uh, when the rapture comes, but it, it could suggest that Satan will actually attempt to resist Jesus as he comes for his church. Uh, to receive his bride uh, to himself. And if that is true, of course, that will be what? Of no avail uh, because of Christ's power. But regardless, think about this fact, that when he does come for his bride and takes us to himself, finally we will be forever free from the devil's temptations. Forever, forever free from the devil's temptations. Another meaning of this word is to claim for oneself. The rapture is Jesus coming to what? To claim his bride, the church, to be loved by him forever. Let me read. I've always loved this stanza. It's a, it's a hymn that we uh, uh, do not sing. What was the name of this hymn, Kathy? The Sands of, the Sands of Time. It was the favorite hymn of D.L. Moody. If, um, 
Most of you probably know who D.L. Moody was, lived in the 1800s, one of the greatest evangelists in our nation's history, and this was his favorite hymn. And here's how the last stanza reads. The bride, referring to the believer, to the church, the bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen? And that is our eternal destiny. Uh, the next meaning of this word, haparso, uh, that's translated to called up, is to move to a new place. And that's exactly what's going to happen when the rapture occurs. Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house, and that's a reference to what? Heaven. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, a place there in heaven. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then the last uh, meaning uh, of this word, how it's used uh, both in uh, uh, the scriptures and in secular literature, is to rescue from danger. To rescue from danger. And we already read 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, and it talks about the church, how they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. That we are delivered from God's wrath that would be poured out on this earth. Now let me share two additional glorious cross references that say it all about the transformation that believers will experience when the rapture occurs. The first one is in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Listen to this. For our citizenship is where? In heaven. We're just mere pilgrims. We're, we're, we're strangers. We're aliens in this world. And we are to live by heaven's laws. Uh, to extend God's presence, express His character, uh, to uh, represent our citizenship of heaven well, from which we also, he says, we, for our citizenship in is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a destiny we have. That when he comes, if we are alive, those that are alive when the rapture occurs, our bodies in a moment will be transformed into the likeness of our dear Lord's body. And 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, listen to this. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. In other words, whether you believers die or they're alive, all will be transformed. But he's making the, the acknowledgement, not all are going to die. Some will be living when this event occurs. It will happen, he says, in a moment, in the blink or a twinkle of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be what? Raised. To live forever, just like it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead will rise first, and then those who are alive will be called up after them. So he says, uh, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living 
will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then look at our last truth as we close today. Love's eternal hope guarantees all believers a glorious reunion. A glorious reunion. And this is really, I think, the heart of the, of the truth that brings comfort uh, or should bring comfort to believers that Paul is driving home. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up, notice the word, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we, all of us, will what? Always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, the main point of this entire passage, and don't miss it, it's very simple. It's it's not complicated. The main point is that the Christian dead, nor the Christian living, will miss out on any of God's eternal blessings. Neither group will take precedence over the other or have any special privileges over the other. Paul is emphasis. Don't miss this now. Listen very carefully. This is the most important statement I'll make all day because this is the heart of what Paul is trying to drive home in this passage. Not again to create speculation about future events, but to bring comfort to those who are Struggling with profound grief. Paul is emphasizing here the unbreakable union which Christians enjoy with Christ and one another, which even death cannot destroy. That's what's being driven home. He's saying death cannot destroy your union with Christ. Death cannot destroy your union with other believers. Because we will all know a reunion to meet the Lord in the air, to be forever with Him. And so as we close, and I've always loved this, look at the comparison there at the end of your sermon notes between the promise that Jesus gave to His followers just prior to His death in John 14, verses 1 through 3, and the passage we've looked at today. Notice the, the, the comparison. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, I will what? Come again. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Going back to John 14, Jesus says, I will receive you to myself. 1 Thessalonians 4, then we shall be caught up together, dead believers, living believers, to meet the Lord in the air. And then notice the next, that where I am, Jesus says, there you may be also. First Thessalonians 4, thus we shall always, circle that word, always be with the Lord. And then Jesus said in John 14, what? In light of this, when you're struggling with grief over the loss of a loved one or a friend or a dear person within the church family that has gone home to be with the Lord, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled in light of this. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says what? Comfort one another. Comfort one another with these words. Father, uh, 
we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful truth today. Very simple, but very powerful. That um, you're using this truth concerning the rapture to drive home the reality that we have an unbreakable link with Jesus and with other fellow believers that even death cannot destroy, that our eternal destiny is to be with the Lord forever. And there is coming a day when we will be reunited with our loved ones and friends and family members who died in the Lord. And so, Lord, give us grace to comfort one another with this truth. Because, Lord, we acknowledge that when you're in the midst of grief, when you're knowing that pain, our tendency is to lose our objectivity. As we just fall into our despair and sorrow. And Lord, that's why we need one another. That's why Paul admonishes us in this passage. Comfort one another with these words. Come along the side of your hurting church member that's struggling with their grief. And remind them of this glorious truth. And not that that will erase the grief. But it will give them a joy in the midst of that grief. And it will give them an eternal hope that is guaranteed that one day there will be a reunion as we fulfill our eternal destiny, as you come for your bride to claim her, to rule at your side as your eternal helpmate in an eternal romance. So, Father, thank you for that glorious destiny. And uh, may we see in light of it, we need not fear death, as we mentioned any more than we would fear going to sleep, knowing that when we awake, we will awake in your arms, in your presence, in that place that is said of that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has the heart of man even begun to perceive all that God has prepared for those who love Him. So, Lord, what is Randy Bledsoe's reality right now is only what we can imagine. But thank you that his reality will be ours one day. And thank you that that's true through a relationship with Christ. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Of course, I trust God has used this message if you are struggling with grief. And I know there are many in this church family uh, that are struggling with grief. I, I trust that this has brought comfort to you. Again, it, it, it's not going to take away the grief, but it brings God's presence into the grief, speaks to the grief, and, and gives hope and joy in the midst of it, uh, knowing what awaits you. But then, of course, there's the other issue, and let me just be very, very direct. Uh, I trust gently, but in love. Uh, are you ready for death? The Scripture says it's appointed to man to die what? Once. And then comes what? Judgment. 
if you were to die today, do you have the assurance that you would have an eternal home in heaven? Have you put your trust and your confidence in Jesus alone for salvation? Have you looked to him there on that cross, believing, yes, he bled for my sins. He paid my debt, a debt I could never repay. He canceled that debt out. And yes, I believe that it was the righteous, the holy God dying for me a sinner. And because he was paying the penalty of my sin, he suffered what? Death. Because death is the penalty of sin. But because he was a righteous, holy God, death could not hold him. And he what? He burst forth from that tomb, that grave, in resurrection life. And he's alive. Amen. Do you believe that he is? And a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And have you said, yes, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yes, I've invited him in to forgive me of my sins, to take control of my life, and now to follow him as my Lord, to live a life honoring to him. Do you have that assurance? I pray you do. If you do not, you can find that assurance today. You can even find that assurance during this time of invitation, just right there in your, in your pew. I'll never forget, uh, I don't know if my brother's here. Uh, my brother was saved at a Wilker, David Wilkerson crusade years ago in the old civic center. And my brother was a, he was a rebel. Uh, he was strung out on drugs. He, he was just a messed up kid. And, uh, and I always had a card of compassion for my brother because I blamed myself in many ways that uh, I did not lead him in the right path. I did many things he was doing, but in many ways what I did in moderation, he did in excess. Uh, and I'll never forget, I invited him, and, and if you could hear his testimony, when the invitation was extended, he stood up and he literally clenched the back of the chair that was in front of him. And he said God was so powerfully moving on him, but he was just cleansing that, just, you know, just sort of fighting it. And praise God uh, that uh, God's light penetrated his darkness. Amen. And praise God that uh, he placed his faith in Jesus that day as he let go and, uh, of that uh, chair and turned to God. Just like, just a beautiful picture of what it said in Thessalonians. They what? They turned to God from what? Serving idols to now eagerly wait for Jesus from heaven who will deliver them from the wrath to come. So that's your opportunity today. And then believers, that 1 John chapter 2 passage, verse 28. When he does appear, if he were to appear today, 
Would you be able to stand face to face with Jesus in confidence? Or would it be a time of shame and embarrassment because of how you're living? That you're living a life that is contradictory to his ways and to his will. And again, not saying that any of us are perfect, we're not. But my point is, and I think you understand, are you sincerely moving in the right direction? Looking to God for grace to overcome those things that you're struggling with. And not just blindly compromising and living a life displeasing to Him. So again, if you're an unbeliever, come to Jesus this morning. If you're a believer, let's make sure there's nothing between you and God. Nothing between you and another person. And that you are surrendered to live your life pleasing to Him. Recognizing that just like you can't save yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works that anyone boasts. That you're impotent apart from God's power in the Christian life. We're to walk in Christ even as we received Him. But God will give you that grace. And God will give you that empowerment as you cooperate with Him and surrender your life to Him. So please stand as the invitation is extended. Uh, I'll be standing here if anyone has a decision of any nature. But I trust we'll all be responding right there in our pews.